if you will, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 is where we will find ourselves today. We are beginning a new series entitled Stewardship God Gives. And today we're looking at how we respond when God gives. How do we respond? We respond by being good stewards of what God has given us. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 7 through 11. We're looking at stewardship, God gives, and we respond. So next week, God gives, and we'll look at a different aspect of what we do in response to how God gives us uh, the gracious gifts that he gives. Randy Alcorn wrote about what he learned of being a steward. He wrote it in this way. He said, if God was the owner, I was the manager. I needed to adopt a steward's mentality toward the assets he had entrusted, not given to me. A steward manages assets for the owner's benefit. The steward carries no sense of entitlement to the assets he manages. It is his job to find out what the owner wants to do with his assets, then carry out his will. That's what Randy Alcorn wrote. And Mark Driscoll, in his book, Doctrine, gives three facts to distinguish a steward. He says a steward gladly acknowledges that he or she belongs to the Lord. You know, they just sang the song, I offer you my life. A good steward gladly acknowledges that he or she belongs to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4-7 attests to this mindset. Paul wrote to them in Corinth and he said, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast if you had not received it? We've received a gift. We have received something. We should steward it well. So a steward, number one, uh, the first fact that distinguishes a steward is a steward gladly acknowledges that he or she belongs to the Lord. Secondly, Driscoll points out, a steward recognizes that everything ultimately belongs to the Lord. Everything ultimately belongs to the Lord. God's ownership is noted in multiple uh, places across the landscape of Scripture. Haggai 2.8 reveals that all gold and silver belongs to the Lord. Psalm 50 verse 10, the Lord speaks to every beast being his along with the cattle on a thousand hills. He says that belongs to him. Also in Deuteronomy 8.17 through 18 is a warning against claiming giftedness and success as yours alone because God has granted those things to you in person or through ability. And the third thing that, uh, that is a fact about stewards is this. Stewards seek to faithfully oversee all that God has entrusted to their oversight. You know, God has granted us families, finances, breath in our lungs. We are to trust this to God and be a trustee unto God of those graces and gifts that he has given us. Malachi 3.8, which we'll explore more next week, Challenges us in our oversight of our finances. When we read the question, will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? God tells Malachi to relay that they are robbing God by giving inadequate offerings and sinful, maimed offerings. So the third thing is stewards seek to faithfully oversee all overall God has entrusted in their oversight. We're to faithfully oversee those things from our family our finances, and the breath in our lungs. 
So we see this word steward in line of its defining for us today, as I just gave to you. So in being a good steward, since God gave, we respond by stewarding our prayer life, stewarding our love, stewarding our hospitality, and stewarding our lives for God's glory. So let's read here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. If you don't know where that's at, it's in the very back portion of the Bible. 1 Peter is. Pretty good piece back there. So if you start at the back and work your way forward, you'll find it pretty quickly. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. And in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as we look at this text today, beginning there in verse 7, it says, But the end of all things is at hand. If you go back and you look in the latter part of chapter 3 and into the first parts of chapter 4, we read much about Christ's suffering and then our suffering as well. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in that, but I want you to understand that Christ suffered so that we may receive. Christ suffered so that he may give. He died in our place so we may receive salvation and that we will not receive the wrath of God. That's the reason why Christ died in our place. And Peter is writing to these believers, these that have been dispersed about, and he's telling them about the end of all things. And as we look at this first thing, the first thing that Peter compels these believers to do is to pray. And we just came out of a series on prayer, prayers for the pilgrim. And so Peter says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Be serious and watchful in in our prayers. So in this text, Peter writes, and if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, he writes to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and he challenges them to continue in prayer, especially considering the end of all things are at hand. Especially considering those things. Now, the New Testament believers in each context felt that Christ's return was imminent. And today, we too are living as though, or should be living as though, Christ's return is imminent. That means like just, just moments away. That Christ's return could be at the strike of 11.10 or 11.07 by my watch. It's 11.06 already. So that we live in a way that Christ's return is just right there. But I believe so many times we live in a way that Christ's return is way over yonder, <laughs> to use some of our southern language. It's, it's way over yonder. But Christ's return could be at any moment. 
And we should live as though he's right there. His return is at hand. So when we, when we think about this, when we think about prayer, we need to be serious and watchful in our prayers. Now, I'm not going to dwell too much on the end of all things. I don't want us to get too distracted with this line right now as it, it holds its own place for a sermon. If you come on Wednesday nights, you get to catch a little bit of that with Brother Howard teaching about the end times, walking us through Revelation, if you want to hear more about that. I'm not sure how far he is in that, but if you want to hear more about it, come on Wednesday, you'll find out. But the end of all things is coming, and it's imminent, and we should live as though it's, it's going to be at the, before this service even concludes. So we should be praying with all seriousness. Prayer should never be just wistfully lofted in the air in an attempt to meet our wants before we can understand our true needs. We need to consider our needs and offer them to God before we just wistfully loft those prayers in the air for what we want. Peter is wanting those dispersed to be in prayer and have an effective prayer life through seriousness and mental alertness. One of the commentators that I was reading this week, his name's Scott McKnight, he wrote, as was the case with the alert husband in chapter 3, verse 7, from this same writing of 1 Peter, and the obedient community in chapter 3, verse 12. So here, with the entire church, if they stay alert... They will be effective in prayer, believing that the entire end of history is at hand and the judge of all mankind we're about to enter should energize their and our prayers and lead to a specifically effective focus in those prayers. We should have a focused prayer life. We've got prayer guides. Matter of fact, if I were to look down here, uh, I don't see one right now, but at Christmas time, we printed out a listing of everybody's name that attends in Sunday school with their phone number, and there and uh, we had a listing of those that are just that had just join us in worship in the sanctuary, and we had the listing of our homebound on that sheet of paper, all in there. You want to know who we need to be praying for? The people on that list. We need to be praying for them. Now we need to be praying for our lost friends, absolutely lost family members. But listen, guys, we have got to be praying for those that are within this, within this fold particularly. We need people to step into roles, people to step up, people to serve. We need to be praying for one another. We need to be alert and mentally aware. You know, the Bible talks about being sober-minded. That's the reason why I'm I don't bring this up all the time. That's the reason why I encourage you, don't, don't drink alcohol because it, it dampens your ability to be aware and to be sober-minded. We need to be sober-minded people that are aware and we are prayer warriors, alert and praying with seriousness. I mean, I, sometimes we don't take serious that Christ could return. And listen, that's a joyous occasion for us. I heard a statement Taryn and I went to a, a, a conference, a passion conference in Atlanta, and they said, come, Lord Jesus, come, and I want Jesus to come. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. At the same time, I say, Lord, please be patient. I pray a prayer, much like Abraham. Lord, if you could just find 10 more people, can you wait? Can you wait if you just find 10 more people? 
God, don't destroy this city yet. Don't destroy this world yet. Don't come yet. I mean, I want you to come. If I'm, I'm praying just this selfish prayer for myself, come, Lord Jesus, please. Just take us out of here. Don't get me wrong. I love that. But at the same time, there's so many that are going to die and go to hell if he comes now. So that's the reason why we have mission work to do. We have missions. It's so that people may come to faith. And then as people are coming to faith, we don't know. The Bible says when the last person hears, the trumpet will sound and Christ will return. We don't know who that last person is. It could be your next door neighbor that you have said, I'm not talking to them. And God says, that's it. That's the person that needs to hear. And then the trumpet will blow. I don't know, but that could be it. We've got to be alert. We've got to be praying. God, give me, give me insight. Give me vision. Give me wisdom. Give me boldness. Give me courage that I may share the good news of Jesus Christ. Because the end of all things is near. But I don't think we believe it or else we'd live a whole lot different. We all would live a whole lot different if we truly believed that Christ could come by 1115 now. We'd live a whole lot different. But we respond. We respond to God's giving by having serious and watchful prayer, to having a serious and watchful prayer life. We respond by loving well. We respond by loving well. Look there in verse 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Peter gives this call to love one another deeply because of how they were all dealing with stresses that were extremely difficult. You got to remember, who is he writing to? Those that have been dispersed to Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. And they're stressed out, their difficulty. They've been taken away, many as prisoners. Some fled for their lives because they were believers. But he says, Peter gives this call to love one another deeply because of how they were all dealing with stresses that were extremely difficult. You know, we have many in our families, in our church, and in our lives that are dealing with difficulties. And with that difficulty comes stress. We have many. Within our own church, many, many of you are on fixed incomes. So dealing with inflation can be stressful. Dealing with health care, rising insurance costs, those things are expensive. And it can become very stressful. We need to love well. We need to love well. Within our church, some are coping with prodigal sons and prodigal daughters. Within our church, some are dealing with nagging sin that they, that they just seem too weak to overcome. We respond as a church by loving well. We respond by loving well. Through love expressed through grace, mercy, accountability, and presence, and that's not like gifts. I'm talking about presence, being in their presence. Sometimes people just need somebody to be there and not talk. I'm sure Job would have appreciated if his friends would have just been in there in presence and not have to say a whole lot. But, you know, sometimes we just need presence. We need someone there. Grace, mercy, accountability, and presence. We can love our church family well, and we also can love our families well 
both those that are saved or lost by showing Christ-like love. And when we love as Christ has directed us to love, our love passes up the temptation to point out the sins and weaknesses of others. Our love looks for opportunities to help others. It looks for opportunities to help others. That's what Ray Summers wrote in his commentary. And this type of love would be that which Christ calls us to in John 13, 34 through 35. Christ wrote and spoke, or he spoke and John wrote. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we need to love one another well. He's talking about loving the brethren, the brothers and sisters in the church, especially your local church. But we should also love any of those that are in like-minded, like-faith churches. We should love them as well. Pray for them. I talked about praying for the universal church as well as our local church. We should love them also. So the outward revelation of the interchange is a love for the brethren, one another. So we must respond by loving one another well. And very quickly before moving on, if you look at the latter part of that verse, of verse 8, it says, For love will cover a multitude of sins. I want to address that. When Peter writes that love will cover a multitude of sins, he appears to be quoting from the proverb that states, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. That's from Proverbs 10, 12. Now, this teaching does not suggest that love ignores the reality of sin, nor justifies nor condones sin. To the contrary, the only solution for sin is forgiveness. And love motivates us to forgive. So we love well. We respond when God gives, we respond by loving well. When God gives, we respond by being hospitable. We respond by being hospitable. Look there in verse 9 very clearly. Like I said, my points are not very complicated. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Be hospitable without grumbling. We need to keep the thought in mind that these responses are in light of the end of all things being near. Hospitality was crucial for the Christian mission in a day when lodging could not be afforded, and hence the advance of the mission depended on the willingness of believers to provide bed and board for those visiting. And we can see instances of that type of hospitality in Matthew 10, 11, Acts 16, 15, and 3 John 7-11. We use a portion of hospitality for tithing. So we may open the doors to this sanctuary to welcome worshipers week in and week out. This is hospitality through the tithe. But hospitality through the individual is even as crucial. When we consider the environment of the early disciples and believers, they were indebted to the hospitality of hosts as they would open their homes for worship and rest. And when we view this scripture understanding the directness of the message to those within the believers, we can note that the words one another show that hospitality here does not have to do with outside visitors or guests, but having one another in homes for meals and fellowship. So it's important for us to show hospitality 
Now, we need to show hospitality to all. It doesn't mean that if they're not a member of our church or if they're not a believer, you don't show hospitality because obviously that would be canceling out a lot of your opportunity to witness. But we should be hospitable people within our own church family. Somebody comes by the house, come on in. Hosting one another, having one another in our homes to, to care for and fellowship and love and, and uh, just enjoy the presence of one another. It's hospitality. Peter challenges those of hospitality not to begrudgingly host, but to host gladly. The ones able to be so hospitable must see this effort as an extension of their love through Christ and their part of mission in Christ. He says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. So we don't need to be uh, people who grumble about being hospitable. Oh man, I've helped them so many times or I've done this so many times or I've opened my door so many times. Don't grumble. Ask God to bless them, you know? Maybe a way instead of grumbling, say, Lord, please, please bless them with what they need. Instead of complaining about maybe helping out, pray about God blessing them. God, give them what they need. May somebody rise up that can meet that need that seems to be an ongoing need, whatever it may be. You know, and there's also folks in the church that are so hospitable at times that it seems they could be taken advantage of because they do a lot. And we just get to a point where we're like, well, they'll do it. And because they're hospitable people. And we need to be, we need to be very mindful of that. Be thoughtful of, of the weariness that could come through people that have a hospitable spirit. Because they can become overwhelmed with hospitality. Like I said, hospitality, yes, in this context, it's talking about you know, taking in those Christian travelers because a lot of places wouldn't take in Christian travelers. But we've also got to be very mindful and thoughtful of those that have a hospitable uh, spirit that God's granted hospitality to, that we just don't go, you know what, they're going to do that. They're going to handle it. They're going to do this or that. You know, we, We've got to be people that are thoughtful people when we consider those that have such a heart in hospitality. And when we think about that heart for hospitality, we can look in the Scripture for this glad hospitality modeled. We can find Aquila and Priscilla. We find them, and we find mention of them in Romans 16.5, 1 Corinthians 16.19. We also see Philemon is one who is very hospitable. Philemon hosted a church in his home. That's what he did. He opened up those homes. So without those who were prepared to open their homes, the early church could not have met for worship at all. So we should be very grateful for those with that hospitable spirit. But we all can have a, you know, we all may not have that hospitable spirit, but we all can be a portion of hospitable. We all can be a little bit of that. In Romans 12, 13, the Christian is said to be marked by hospitality. The widows that are noted in 1 Timothy 5, 10, who were believers, were hospitable. In Hebrews 13, 2, it reminds us that our hospitality to strangers may be to angels unaware. In the pastoral epistle Titus, we find the pastor must be hospitable. In Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of those who took him in while as a stranger 
in revealing their hospitality. Hospitality is a marked response of those stewarding properly what God gives, salvation. Hospitality is a marked response of those stewarding properly what God gives, that of salvation. And lastly, we respond by being good ministers. We respond by being good ministers. Look there in verse 10, uh, verse 10 and 11. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So we respond by being good ministers. When God gives, we steward well the, the gifts and the ministries that he has given to us. These items specifically mentioned for us to steward are in two primary categories, that of speaking and serving. Speaking and serving. Paul provides more detail to these two categories, but Peter's purpose is to speak to the two main categories generally instead of discussing the varieties of gifts Paul lays out. Paul lays out all these different gifts, you know. I mean, he's talking about teaching and preaching and, and um, serving and hospitality, and he names off many different gifts. But Peter is just hitting the main two. So the first thing he talks about is we should respond by being good ministers of God's Word. Good ministers of God's Word. The oracles of God that he mentions refer to the words God has given his people, such as is in Acts 7.38, Romans 3.2, and Hebrews 5.12. The phrase, oracles of God, is rooted in the Old Testament, where we have both oracles of God and your oracles. And using speaking gifts to minister to others means that the one speaking speaks God's words. One commentator, his last name is Schreiner, he wrote, How easy it is to think we can assist others with our own wisdom. But those who are entrusted with the ministry of speaking should be careful to speak God's words, to be faithful to the gospel. So many times people will say, Brother Blake, I got a question for you. I'll say, I, hopefully I'll have an answer. You know, I don't always have an answer. I might not always have a good answer. But I hope and pray that my answer is founded in the Word of God, especially if it's a biblical question. It better be. And I pray that you're praying for me that it'll be a good answer that comes straight from the Bible and not just my opinion. Because unfortunately, our opinions a lot of times are formulated by what we view and what we hear outside of the Bible many a times, right? If you stay on social media too long, you're going to be twisted and turned in all different types of directions to hate and to divide and everything else. So be cautious. Let what you say be from the wisdom of the Word of God and not from the, not from the scrolling of a social media. Barclay wrote, in his commentary, he said, Peter is saying, if a man has the duty of preaching, 
Let him preach not as one offering his own opinions or propagating his own prejudices, but as one with a message from God. It was said of one great preacher, first he listened to God, and then he spoke to men. It was said of another that ever and again he paused as if listening for a voice. And there lies the secret of preaching power. That we just don't get up here and spout off, that I don't just get up here and spout off whatever comes to my mind. That's the reason why I have pretty detailed notes. Because when I study and I pray and I read these commentaries, I type down a lot of what goes through my mind. Many of things, because I'm a rabbit chaser at times, you've probably figured that out. So I need to stay focused. So while I'm studying during the week and I'm praying and I'm reading these commentaries, I'm reading the Word of God, I'm I'm typing these things out so that I can give you what the Lord has given me. Not so I can give you my opinions. Stand up here with just just one word or two words. It's scary. I'm I'm just going to tell you something, guys. I hear preachers say, I've heard preachers say, I don't study till Saturday night. The Lord's going to give it to me. Ooh, buddy. It's dangerous. Dangerous. Listen, as a pastor, as a preacher, man, we, we've got to be, we've got to be in the word. I got to steward this word well. I, this is the oracles of God. Oh, could I do that? Possibly, but you ain't you ain't gonna feel the spirit. I don't think so. Now the word of God is living and active. It can cut the soul and spirit and it can do what God wants it to do. But I fully believe that the pastor, the preacher, whoever's in the pulpit needs to be in the word during the week so that on Sunday morning when he preaches the word, it's not just repetition of reading. It's from the heart. It's from the soul. Because I want you to grow. I want you to be pilgrims praying on the way to heaven. I want you to be good stewards of what God gives. And for a new year to start, what better time to think about the gifts and the goodness that God has granted unto us than in January that we woke up with another day to glorify God and to respond to his goodness by praying with seriousness, by loving well, by being hospitable and by being good ministers of the gifts that God has granted to each and every one of you that is slightly different to fulfill and fill the work of the church. Because everybody's got a little bit of a gift somewhere. You might not be the one that's teaching a Sunday school class or leading a choir or singing in a choir, but you've got something that you do that God has gifted you with. Steward it well. Steward it well. Steward your gift well. To put it simply, whether in teaching, preaching, or speaking, we should steward the Word of God with great respect, care, and caution. So we should be good ministers of God's Word. We should be good ministers of our gifts. And I want us to grasp that our gifts are exactly that. They're gifts. When I choose to give a gift to someone, excluding like white elephant gifts or dirty Santa at Christmas time, you know, stuff like that, excluding those gifts, when I choose to give a gift to someone, I give them because I believe the receiver can make good use of the gift. Isn't that the reason why most of the time we give a gift to somebody? 
We love them. We care about them. If not, we wouldn't know what gift they wanted or needed. So we care about them, so we give them a gift. And we give them that gift because we think they're going to use it. You know, even, even in little small gifts, you know, like this year for Christmas, uh, on our Christmas Eve, Julie uh, got a bunch of little bitty gifts, and she wrapped them up in some saran wrap. I don't know if you've ever done that, done a saran wrap ball where you put on the gloves and you tear it off and all that stuff. So we did that on Christmas Eve. Well, the things that Julie got was things mostly that, that Brogan could potentially use in his dorm. There was little bitty whisks. I mean, like little bitty whisk and little bitty brushes to brush like he likes to cook. And so she got things that he could use. Hardly anything in there was stuff I could use. There was some candy. I've been eating on it. But, but um, there were things he could use. And when we buy gifts, we buy things that we hope they can use. And we give things. When we give gifts, God has given us gifts to use. God never gives us a gift that says, now store this away. It'll be better later. God don't do that with our gifts. God has given us a gift to use at the moment of reception. God doesn't say stick it on a shelf, let it, let it garner some interest. No, he says use it now. He's given you a voice, sing. He's given you a heart to read and to teach, teach. He's given you a heart to be hospitable. Welcome people into your home. Welcome them into your Sunday school class. Welcome them into this church. Be on the welcome team. Be an usher. Be hospitable. Use your gift. But don't stick it on a shelf because we know that gifts that are from God are for use, not storage. I mean, all through the Bible, you can read where God is pretty much against storage, right? He used the parable in the New Testament. That guy was rich. He said, I think I'm going to build more storage barns for all the stuff I got. God says, well, you should have been giving it away as a gift because tonight your life will be called upon from you. Use the gifts that God has given you. Steward the gifts of God well. God gives us good gifts to use in the moment and for the mission Spiritual gifts are given to serve and to help others, to strengthen others in their faith. They're given for ministry, not to enhance self-esteem. And when we steward well the gifts given us, we strengthen the body, one another. Spiritual gifts are not fundamentally a privilege, but a responsibility, a call to be faithful to what God has granted. That's what the Christian Standard Commentary commentator wrote. Do you know how exciting... It would be to be a part of a church which this teaching on stewardship God gives we respond was taken seriously. You know how exciting it would be? Can you imagine what it would be like to have people spontaneously reach out with a loving attempt to minister to one another? It'd be amazing. And listen, I see that here. I'm not telling you something that I don't see. People come here and they're guests, they visit, some stay. And they say, man, you know what? This church has been very loving, very receptive, very, you know, I have felt so good with people. But, you know, I'm grateful for, for people ministering that gift of hospitality to them. That's the kind of church God desires, the kind of church I desire. And that's the kind of church you, uh, excuse me, that's the kind of church I want you to become using the spiritual gifts which God has entrusted to each of you and to myself. We've got to use those gifts God's given us. And we need to be good ministers for God's glory. So what is the end result of a respondent church 
In these ways, God is glorified. Look there in the latter part of those verses. It says that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever and amen. So the end result, the chief end of man is to glorify God all of our days. God is glorified, and as we allow the Holy Spirit to swell within us, and as we allow him to minister through us, and the spiritual gifts which God has given to us, we are fulfilled, and God is glorified. And when we are living in view of the end of all things, we will live knowing that this life is temporary, and eternity just means more. Does eternity mean more to you? Eternity with Christ, that is? Does Christ mean more to you? Is he so much more that you'd be willing to share the gospel today? I know many of us go out to eat on Sundays after church. You've got a waitress or a waiter. Have you prayed for that person? Maybe you go to the same place every Sunday. Maybe you get the same waiter or waitress. Have you prayed for them? Have you told them about Jesus? Have you taken that opportunity? Listen, what are they going to do? Many a times people, even lost people cherish prayers many a times. They'll say, yeah, pray for my family. Pray for my health. Pray for my kids. Pray for this. Pray for that. So in conclusion, what I want you to do is this. I want you to go and steward the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go in response to God's giving. Go in response to God's giving. That's what I want you to do. Listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ, I want to tell you this. He's got a gift worth stewarding in your life. And it's to get the salvation. It's the gift. It's the only gift that's going to get you out of hell. It's the only gift that saves to the uttermost. It's the only gift that will separate your sin as far as the east is from the west. It's the only gift that will throw your sins to the deepest part of the sea. And God gives freely. For you have been saved by faith through grace and it's not of your work so that any man can boast. This is so that you may know him, so that you may have a relationship with the creator God of all things. I hope that you've got a relationship with Christ. 